0: Well, good evening once again, folks, and thank, <coughs> excuse me, thank you so much, Dan, and <coughs> what's that all about? And uh, it's Monday night. Thank you for being here on a Monday night. Are the Vikings playing tonight? No. Oh, no, i I'm not much into the football thing. Yeah, who cares? That's how I feel. All right. Well, honest to goodness, uh, you have before you, I trust, a sheet, uh, and uh, it's... it's uh, I call it there a tale of two gardens from the olive press. The first garden, of course, is Gethsemane, and Gethsemane means olive press. We'll talk about it a little bit, to a borrowed tomb in a garden. And I say there, Jesus learns obedience through the things which he suffered, and I'm taking that right out of Hebrews chapter 5. And you know, uh, I I, I talked about this a little bit yesterday, but but, uh, to some, and perhaps even just slightly and intuitively to some of us, The idea of Jesus learning is a little strange, a little off-putting, because we want to honor his uh, deity, and we certainly do that, but as I say, there is bottomless mystery in this, but there can be little doubt that Jesus learned because of this verse. Hebrews 5, I'll read verses 7 and 8, says in the days of his flesh, Jesus, and by the way, this is an explicit reference to Jesus' experience in Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And I think the idea is, there are various ways to read that, to deliver him through the experience of death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And then it says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a part of a broad, uh, broad argument that is being made here for Jesus' uh, priestly uh, credentials. But, but uh, this this idea that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered, and that's what I want us to think about. And I say on your sheet there that. Uh, 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 Well, what I want to do is walk through the last night of Jesus' life, and we're going to have to be very selective and very quick. I actually have to start a little earlier on Tuesday afternoon on a couple of accounts. But uh, it is at once, as I say on your sheet, uh, what we're going to be thinking about is at once the most awful and the most blessed series of events in human history, the most awful, because... uh, uh, it's going to culminate. Well, not culminate. Oh, praise the Lord. You know, we talk about the Passion Week uh, often, and I always say that the Passion Week is an eight-day week, Sunday to Sunday. And if it weren't for that last Sunday, we wouldn't be here tonight, right? So, But uh, the drama uh, reaches a uh, climax of terror on Friday when Jesus is crucified. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the most awful event in human history, or a series of events, if you don't mind, just because It was the most awful miscarriage of justice, the most awful violation of all that is right and and sacred that could ever occur. But it's the most blessed because it was God's purpose to provide a covering for our sin. Amen and amen. So, it's a uh, uh, now you know what it's a. um, Well, the scenes we're going to trace very quickly are hugely important, and they deserve a better telling than I'm able to give them. But. Uh, it is important to focus on them. I think i 've said to you before in other uh, other seasons and other contexts that you know I mentioned last night that each one of the four gospels is deliberately selective, each gospel writer is selecting and emphasizing and even arranging and then omitting material uh, in order to make his argument frankly, within the space of a scroll. Are you familiar with that? uh a lot of the bible books are about the same length because it was pretty much an outside limit of a scroll and so you'll see that matthew luke and john are about the same and luke and acts are about the same but at any rate the the four gospels are deliberately selective but here's a curiosity and i think it's an instructive one uh, each of the four gospels gives about 40 percent of his space to the final week of jesus life what we call the passion week beginning with a triumphal entry and culminating in the resurrection of Jesus and then the resurrection appearances. So so each, about 40%, about two-fifths of each of the four Gospels is given over to that final week. And I always say that that suggests, uh, I think there are a couple of inferences we can draw from that. One is that God wants us to know this scene, this drama. He gives a lot of space to it. And the other is that we can reconstruct this final week of Jesus' life with a measure of detail and specificity that we can't bring to most of his life. And uh so I'm going to walk you through and again this is uh, I'm just going to pick some things out but uh again the 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 our focus throughout the time we've been together and we've gone elsewhere but I've tried to bring it back to this is that in point of fact Jesus lived a real human life and as such he learned in many ways And uh, I think it's encouraging and instructive. Well, let me go take you to the the narrative there. And I begin, and I want you to go with me to these passages. John chapter 12. Uh, And I call it a framing event. That is, uh, it seems to me that to really appreciate the... uh, uh, And we're going to go to Gethsemane in just a moment. But to appreciate Gethsemane, You've got to start with John 12. I mean, I think there's wisdom, let's put it that way, In starting with John 12, because of the contrast. Now, let me tell you, John 12 is Tuesday afternoon. On Sunday, Jesus had ridden into the town, and the whole city had, had erupted in happy welcome and thrown down their garments and welcomed him as king. Uh, whenever I'm, uh, when I take people through the Passion Week, and we've done it here, i always ask the question uh, given sunday why friday given the fact that the city welcomed him on sunday why are they crying for his crucifixion on friday and i believe the answer is monday and tuesday when jesus makes the truth so clear concerning himself and demands that that city welcome him not only as deliverer from rome they were happy to do that because they knew they had no other answer but that they accept him as deliverer from sin and they weren't interested in that because they were confident they could attend to that for themselves, given, you know, they, by keeping the law. Now, on, 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 so on Monday, Jesus rides into the city and what we call the, uh, that's not true. On Monday, Sunday is the triumphantry. Monday, he returns to the city and cleanses the temple for a second time and then takes control of the temple. By the way, on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus behaves more messianically than any other time in his life. But by the end of that day, as he leaves the city, he has left the city with a choice to make. On Friday morning, they're going to announce their verdict. But very importantly, on Tuesday afternoon, and this is recorded only by John, and as is his wont, by the way, but in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, we have this remarkable story of some Greeks, some Gentiles, who were there for the Passover. They were having proselytes of some sort, seekers at least. And they come and they say, hey, we want to see Jesus. And they're brought to Jesus. And, you know, I have this conversation, but, well, let me just pick it up in John chapter 12. And, uh, and, and verse, uh, well, we'll start in verse 23. John 12 and verse 23. Uh, all right, just a second here. Yeah, here it is. Well, you know what? All right, got to set the scene. That's where I have it on your sheet. I need to back up a little bit. Well, I guess I did. Forgive me. The, these Greeks, the, it says in, in, uh, in verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship were some at the feast who were Greeks, and they came to Philip, and they said, uh, We wish to G- see Jesus. Philip takes it to Andrew, and Andrew bring him to Jesus. And now here's the conversation. And by the way, time out. It's kind of interesting here that the Greeks get lost. In the narrative. This is not unusual with John. He will introduce the story and some of the initial principles of the story, that is principals, you know, some of the the central people, kind of disappear. But what happens is Jesus answered them, and he says, The hour has come for the man the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies and bears much fruit, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world, keep it for eternal life. And he goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, I want to say that, all right, I I think Jesus is is speaking primarily here of his own death. He is encouraging himself in his own death. I think when he said, look... And here's where I'm taking you. One of the clearest elements of the narrative, and it's hard on some people, of Jesus' passion is that as the cross drew near, it absolutely filled him with unspeakable terror. He was horrified by the prospect of, the, of death. And whenever I say that, I have to be quick to say it was not the prospect of the physical suffering of the cross. And the cross is unspeakably. The, 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 the Romans had taken a well known means of execution and they had refined it, they had fine tuned it. And they intended it to be unspeakably cruel. And it was. I like to say, as a matter of fact, this will set. Us up for something I'm going to say at the very close. That Rome demanded that crucifixion be characterized in four ways. Now you need to understand that crucifixion was not primarily about executing the seditionist. It had been developed. You'll sometimes hear that it was primarily a slave's death. But that's just because the sedition so often arose among the slave, the the, the, the class of, of, of slaves. But in point of fact, any sedition, any Rome fine-tuned crucifixion, not primarily to execute the seditionist, the rebel, but to put down the sedition. It was a gruesome, extended, unspeakably awful object lesson that was designed to retard whatever impulse towards sedition might be simmering in your Does that make sense to you? So I'm going to say very quickly, and I'm I'm being delicate here. I know there are young ears, but number one, it was designed to be unspeakably cruel and uh, physically cruel. Uh, the, The victim was normally, I mean, it was protocol. It was pretty much the standard that the victim before he was crucified would be scourged. Now, the scourging endured by Jesus is not a standard pre-crucifixion scourging. That was of a different type that Pilate had in mind, but generally the the scourging was pretty surgical because the second demand that Rome made had to be cruel, but it also had to be lingering. And they didn't want to so thoroughly debilitate the man before he was hanged on that cross that he would expire quickly. They wanted him to live at least a day and perhaps into a second day. But they they would scourge him rather surgically to open up fresh, deep wounds. Because on the cross, as soon as you were hung on the cross, within minutes your rib cage settled in on your breathing apparatus and you could not breathe without hoisting yourself up. For that reason, there was always an apparatus, some sort of apparatus by which you could hoist yourself up. You had to do so to take every breath. You, you couldn't sleep. You couldn't slip into a coma. You would you would die immediately, because you couldn't breathe without pushing yourself up. Well, you're, you've got these fresh wounds all across your back. That timber, that rough splintered timber uh, that you're back against as you push yourself up. Uh, you can figure it out. And the uh, and the terror was awful. By the way, uh, that's why if the Romans, for whatever reason, wanted to hasten the death of a crucified victim they would break the legs because once they broke the legs they couldn't hoist themselves up. That makes sense to you? Now I'm just saying they wanted to be cruel you know in this regard I, I, I don't know This it always occurs to me uh, imagine if you were to meet a young lady and you're just talking to her and as you're talking with her you notice she's got a little little necklace on and as you look at that necklace you notice That it's a very finely crafted little golden guillotine. Now you'd think that's macabre, wouldn't you? What who? Well, think about this. The distinctive of the guillotine, as I understand it, invented by Dr. Guillotine, I guess, whatever in the world, was that it was to be swift and merciful. The whole point of a cross is that it was to be lingering and cruel. It's just curious that we have sanitized the concept of a cross. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not, not going to change because Bookman said so. But, but uh, we, we've kind of we've sanitized the whole thing. It was unspeakable. It had to be l- cruel, it had to be lingering, and it had to be public. And so it was always near a gateway because a gate to the city is a bottleneck and you can't go around. And it had to be on a low hill. Not so high, I mean, not, you see sometimes these, it was just high enough that even as the crowd made its way through, and you might press way over to the far side of the gate and take the kids and wrap their ears in your, in your cloak and so on and make your way, but you couldn't, you couldn't, you you, you couldn't have, you could see and you could hear as that wretch hanged there for all of that time. Now there's a fourth demand and I'm going to come back to it, but the point is, let me go back where I was and i'm i'm being very careful here i'm going to say again jesus was terrorized by the cross but it was not the physical sufferings as all as awful as they are he was terrorized by the prospect of being made sin for you and me and being and and and, and being as it were separated from the father not as it were in some real sense now i have that later on let me just drop down here to where I've got under 2B you'll see it there concerning the biblical concept of death. I can say it here quickly as I'm talking about it. what I'm saying is Jesus was terrorized by the prospect of the cross and what and and folks again I'm going to say Jesus learned obedience. Jesus had never experienced anything like this. I think Jesus all right let me say when we think of death we tend to think immediately and almost exclusively of physical death now i'm one of the older guys in the room you know it's getting close i know that and uh i don't find it horrifying but i certainly find it intimidating and but but the point is uh in the bible i would argue that physical death is an afterthought uh what is at stake the first time we encounter death in the Bible is in Genesis 3 when God says, don't eat of that fruit. If you do, the day that you do, you will surely die. And I tend we, we tend to think, well, he ate it and 930 years later he died. No, 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 no. Sometimes they'll take the phrase, uh, some have tried, it won't work in the Hebrew, but t- people have taken the phrase, dying, you shall die, and say you'll start to die. No, no. In the moment he ate it, he died. He died a spiritual death. He knew what it was he had known. And by the way, don't you suppose Adam retained the memory after his fall of what it was like to walk in the cool of the day with God? God crafted us to know him, to enjoy him. There can be no soul satisfaction in this life or the next unless we are rightly related to this God who crafted us to know and enjoy him. And here Adam had known that, but now... He's fearful of God. He's alienated from God. He's fleeing God. He's angry with God. There is this sense of desperate separation between himself and 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 the God who created him. That's what spiritual death is. That makes sense to you? And 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 and, and by the way, I always say, I, I think physical death. It's important. I, I don't mean to. Well, it's 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 a horribly secondary importance, but. But how how hard is it for God to fix physical death? Yeah, it's just, Lazarus, come out here. Out he comes, hopping out of the tomb. How hard is it for God to fix spiritual death? That's what's before us, what Jesus is going to have to endure. And so, (laughs) what terrified Jesus was the prospect, and we're going to come back to it in just a bit, of hanging on the cross and crying out now oh, take away the cross what, pros- what what terrified him was crying out my got <laughs> <had> the cough <coughs> my god my god why hast thou forsaken me and this alienation from god is what i i believe that that's what hell is all about i believe in a hot hell but i believe that that what will make hell to be hell is the consciousness that we that the person assigned to that to that to that state he, he will understand he will never know the god who created him to know him and so that's what jesus and i like to say in this regard i'll just say very quickly that you know we all believe in a trinitarian god we believe in a triune godhead we believe there are three persons in one god we can't understand that it totally totally is 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 it transcends our capacity to understand we can believe what the bible says but it certainly teaches us that there is between or among the persons of that triune godhead a oneness and a fellowship and a a union and a communion that is infinite and indescribable and whatever that oneness is between father and son on the cross that 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 union and 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 love and communion for those hours those dark hours from noon to three on the cross the father is going to judicially disfellowship the son. And, 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 and there is an infinity. And by the way, it's just as awful to the father as it is to the son. Now, I'm going to say again, Jesus had never endured this. Uh, it was, I, I, he knew something about it. Jesus had watched, if you don't mind, as Adam and Eve alienated themselves from God. He had watched as human beings all through history up until that time had had walked in the kind of darkness and despair that is the result of rejecting and alienating yourself from God. But he had never known what it is to be separated from the Father. And he knew that that's the cost of sin. So I'm going to suggest to you that As here, I'm way back to John chapter 12. As these Greeks come and they would see Jesus, and Jesus begins to talk about dying. And he says, Unless a grain of wheat fall on the ground and die, I think he's encouraging his own soul spirit. But at any rate, he's clearly contemplating the death that he's going to soon endure. And so now you have this scene, and this is the scene I want you to see in John chapter 12 and verse 23. No verse uh, these number twenty seven. All right, now and 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 again, I've lost my way. Jesus, these Greeks come. There's a conversation. John is telling us about the conversation, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the conversation, as it were, Jesus says in verse twenty seven, "Now is my soul troubled." Now I, I I picture this. Forgive me, as as something of a Shakespearean soliloquy. I don't know anything about Shakespeare, but we know what a soliloquy is, right? Where the Actor kind of breaks free of the oh, I'll take it, bro, thanks a million, kind of breaks free of the uh, the scene and steps to the front of the stage and looks to the heavens and so on. That seems to be what 's going on here in the midst of this, as he 's talking to those, those those Greeks, he all of a sudden I picture him maybe grabbing his heart and staggering a little bit and saying, "Now, my soul is troubled. This is as he contemplates death." And then notice the next verse, he says, or the next phrase, he says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And therefore he prays this, Father, glorify your name. Now, let me say that you could not pray, there could not be a more noble prayer in all of the moral universe than what the the Son prays to the Father. And understand what he's saying. He's, he, he, he's, as he contemplates death, his soul is, off, is, is suddenly stricken with a heaviness. And he looks to the heavens and he says, what shall I pray? Shall I pray, deliver me from this hour? I can't do that. So I'm going to pray this. As dark, as awful, as foreboding as it is. As, 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 I'm going to simply pray, Father, you be glorified. Folks, we're all going to face vicissitudes of life, are we not? There's your model right there. There could be no more noble, selfless model than to say as dark as this is, I don't know where it's headed, I don't know how I'm going to get through it, but Father, you be glorified. And the Father, and it was so, and and don't you think that the, the, the heart of the Father in heaven was so carefully attuned to that of the Son? And at this moment, the Father in heaven breaks protocol and he speaks aloud, and he makes a promise. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, that's the promise that Jesus took to Calvary. And it's interesting. We're not going to walk through this real carefully. Well, we are. So now, I want you to bring that with you. Here's why I start there. I'll just, I'll just give away the punchline right now. The reason I think it's so instructive to start with that scene on Tuesday afternoon is because on Thursday night, Jesus three times prays the prayer he refused to pray on Tuesday afternoon. does not it, it? What shall I pray? Deliver me from... I can't pray that. And I think it so bespeaks the terror of the cross that on Tuesday night, as the cross drew us so near, Jesus is going to three times pray, Father... If there be any way, we're going to come to that. All right, now let me me go on with the narrative. That was on Tuesday afternoon. It's kind of a standalone event. Let me tell you one other thing. On Tuesday evening, and now I've got got just a brief reference, but I think it would be good to go to it. I told myself, let's actually go to these passages. So Luke 22. Luke 22. This is Tuesday night. We have the same narrative in Matthew uh, 26 and Mark 14, and we're told in matthew 26 especially that it was two days before the passover so there's no doubt that this is tuesday evening now i'm, I'm asking a lot of you here but let's remember this is the passion week and let's ha- let's remember what has happened on sunday by the way let me say this first of all about three to five weeks ago jesus raised lazarus from the dead in a, at bethany which is a suburb of this city we're in jerusalem and just a mile about a mile and a half out of Jerusalem on the east, on the backside of the Mount of Olives, is Bethany. Jesus raised uh, Lazarus from the dead at Bethany. And after he did, uh, the Sanhedrin gathered, remember this, and Caiaphas took the leadership, and he said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. This is John chapter 11 and verse uh, 50, this would be 50, no, it wouldn't be, but about 47. And uh, so, 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 uh, Caiaphas said, "What shall we do?" This is after the raising of Lazarus, some weeks ago. For this man does many signs. And I always like to stop there and say, you know what? There's a biblical answer to that question. And I'll tell you what it is. You check the Old Testament to see if he's consistent with the Old Testament. If he is, you bow the knee. That's that's what you do. In other words, he's a spokesman for God, and you listen to him. But that wasn't Caiaphas' answer. He said, "What?" He was the high priest. What shall we do? This man does many signs. If we leave him alone, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation, and therefore they determined to put him to death. John 11, 50, 53, and then in verse 57, it says that that uh, they put a notice out that anybody knew where Jesus was, he should be arrested. So so the point is that the the Jewish leaders were mad. That Jesus was a fugitive. That's one of the things you've got to bring to this whole Passion Week narrative is the realization that Jesus was a fugitive. There was a price on his head. He had to be so circumspect. He wasn't sneaking around, but he used the crowds to cover him uh, himself and protect himself. But leave that alone. The point is that the, the the Sanhedrinists were all already mad. And now on Sunday morning, he rides into the city and the, city, the whole city rejoices and welcomes him as king. Well, now they're mad they can't see straight. And then and, and and in so doing he is primarily uh, violating, if you don't mind, the turf of the Pharisees. Because they, the common man followed the Pharisee and the Pharisees had said he's to be arrested and now the whole city erupts in happy welcome. But then on Monday morning he returned and took control of the temple. Now he's stomping over all over the territory of the Sadducees. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees together and they pretty much comprise the Jewish leadership and the body of the organized body of Jewish leadership is called the Sanhedrin and its its Pharisees and Sadducees. They are mad beyond words. And so on Tuesday night, they gathered at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, his private villa on the hill to the south of Jerusalem, called the Hill of Evil Council, and they, they, they wanted to put him to death. And they couldn't figure out that. as a matter of fact, they confessed in both Matthew and Mark. We can't do it during the feast because there will be a riot. Now again, I've got to give you this much background, that Jesus was a master at protecting himself. That is, he used the very superficial and self-serving adulation of the crowds to protect himself. And so you see it right here in Luke 22, where it says uh, the Feast of unleavened Unbread drew near. Now again, both Matthew and Mark tell it was two days away. Uh, and the chief priest uh, and, and the scribes, that's the Sanhedrin, chief priests are the Sadducees. Scribes are basically the Pharisees. That, that's what's at stake here. So the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, let me just stop on this real quickly. I shouldn't. But on Saturday night, there had been a feast in Bethany. At that feast, Mary had anointed Jesus with a whole vial of very expensive perfume everybody in the room had said mary you're crazy and jesus had rebuked him leave her alone she does this against the day of my burial one person took deep offense at it and that was judas he was angry the bible says in john that uh, that he kept the bag and was anxious to uh, to, to, to john tells the story in john chapter 12 It's interesting, this is probably more than I can expect you to handle, but it's interesting that both Matthew and Mark tell the story of, it happened on Saturday, clearly. But Matthew and Mark tell it in the middle of this Tuesday narrative because they want you to understand what it was that so angered Judas that when he got the chance, he sneaked off to betray Jesus. Now, rather than telling that story... Luke simply says, verse 3, that Satan entered Judas. Folks, some people have this idea that, you know, there's some big demonic lottery going on. And if your number comes up, man, they can just move in, folks. No demon can have any more power in your life than you allow him to have. Judas was an unbeliever. One of the great, I may have said it to you before, I'm always going here, but one of the realities of Scripture that it's so important to process and understand is that sin makes you stupid, and, and, and it perverts everything. And whereas everybody else heard Jesus' rebuke, and they took the rebuke and understood, it settled into Judas's heart. And for three days, he pouted on it, and he grew angrier and angrier. So now on Tuesday night, Judas, late in the day, sneaks off to the home of Caiaphas, where the Sanhedrinists, remember what happened now, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, triumphal entry, cleansing the temple, uh, they were so mad they couldn't see straight, as I say. So Judas makes his way down to the home of Caiaphas, and it says, "In uh, Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, and so on, and then in verse 4 it says, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And uh, I'm so embarrassed. Uh, and uh, so he, he, he went uh, and conferred the chief priests how he might betray him to them. And they, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. Now, again, you have to understand, I want to make sure you understand that they had gathered to put him to, to figure out how to do it. But they knew they couldn't figure out how to do it because Jesus was so clever. He was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. But when Judas came, they were glad they consented, sought an opportunity. And he... Uh, So he consented and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now get this real quickly. Uh, I've said it to you before, many of you, but there's a lot of confusion about what Judas was hired to do. And what confuses everybody is the kiss, or it's confused so often. So you have this idea again and again that Judas was hired to identify Jesus which doesn't make any sense when you think about it you know like they wanted they were mad at him but they couldn't pick him out of a lineup for heaven's sakes uh the fact is he'd ridden into the city on on sunday he cleansed the temple and possess, there was no set of human features in all the land more familiar than that of the nazarene the kiss remember on the night that he was arrested judas had said the one i'm kiss, that was for the soldiers because the Romans did not allow the Jewish leadership any force of arms, so if they wanted to make arrest, they could, but they had to use Roman soldiers and the Roman soldiers were just mercenaries didn 't speak the language, lived in a in, in a fortress there in the, the north side of the temple so now those, those 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 Roman soldiers have to be told who is the but Judas was hired now get this, and it wasn 't a, a roll of the dice; he was hired to help them. Arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. And they knew when the next time would be that Jesus would of necessity be in the absence of the multitude. It would be two nights later at the Passover feast. Because by law, the Passover feast had to be taken indoors, and everybody else would be doing the same thing. And so the perfect time to arrest Jesus would be in the connection with the Passover. And that was Judas's bargain. I'll help you arrest him in the absence of the multitude. Now, go to the next point. There, number two. On Thursday afternoon, I'm just kind of working my way toward it. On Thursday afternoon, Jesus dispatches. And you know this story, so I'm going to tell you very quickly. Jesus dispatches Peter and John to uh, 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 to to make ready for the for the Passover. <laughs> this is I'll swap you. <laughs> Those numbers are too small for me. Uh, I thought I could do better. Uh, now, you know the story. I'm going to tell you very quickly. It's in Luke 22, beginning of verse 7. Jesus sent Peter and John. It was Thursday afternoon. They would have to go to the temple, have the pas- uh, the lamb slain, and then they would take the butchered meat, and they would take it to a place where they would prepare the, 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 for the meal. They undoubtedly, Peter and John undoubtedly expected it would be just some, some uh, tent on the hillside somewhere. That's where most everybody, all the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the feast, they would, they would not all of them, but many of them would just all on the hillsides around, they would pitch their tent, they would go and have the Passover lamb slain, and then you go inside, you go in your tent. Well, that's probably what they intended. None of them lived in this area. They were all from Galilee, save Judas. But Jesus says, no, I want you to go into town, and you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, again, I am absolutely convinced, and I, people sometimes get a little upset with me, you shouldn't, I'm a nice guy, but... But the, the, but the, there's something about this passage where they're just con- all right. This is often read to mean that Jesus somehow omnisciently um, intuited that man, that 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 the disciples said to him, he said go prepare, and they said well where do you want us to do it, and forgive me, but Jesus said well I hadn't thought about that, but I'm getting something here. You're going to go into town. You're going to now when you think about that, it makes absolutely no sense doesn't matter what's that guy doing there for heaven's sakes what's that room doing there look i believe I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that jesus had set this up he had arranged i think probably on wednesday which is a silent day in the record but as part of that day he had gone to his he was staying in bethany just on the back side of the mount of olives with lazarus the man whom he had called from the grave just a few days earlier a few weeks earlier and uh, I think he probably went to Lazarus and said, there's a woman who lives on the broad western hill in uh, Jerusalem, a, the gated district, the very expensive villas, and she has a large upper room, and I need, I'd like to ask if I can borrow it for the Passover. And uh, so send one of your servants, do it carefully, clandestinely, and if it's okay, I want her to have a man with a pitcher standing at a certain gate. Why? Well, in point of fact, that's really a clever signal i always say it's it's very unusual generally mi- uh, wi- uh, women or children carry the water so a man carrying a pitcher of water would be unusual but it's not bizarre it's not going to it's like i say it's not like a two-headed chicken people aren't going to stop and stare and so the point is jesus said i believe he set it up and and so he says to his disciples you just go into town you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water and you follow him all right why he is keeping the place secret from judas now again he knows that judas and and, and whether omnisciently or even just in, he understood that judas had made this bargain and and so again what happens is they go they prepare the place late, that's on thursday afternoon later that evening jesus leads the ele- the 12 i'm sorry from bethany into the city and to this to this large upper room up in the Western Hill. By the way, on the back of the page, I gave you a map, which you can kind of follow some of this now. Uh, so <laughs> you'll, you'll see that right in the middle of the page on the right side, there's a circle and a bar, and it says preferred spot. Well, that got moved. Can you tell? That wandered over from Herod's palace on the left. So, so I do not believe that uh, Jesus was really tried in the middle of that word the there, but... Uh, You've got to move that way over, straight over to the left where it says Herod's Palace and on the western wall. But at any rate, you can trace. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but Jesus comes to Bethany because it was a walled city. He had to enter the city through a gate, and the gate that he undoubtedly used was on the south. It's called the Dung Gate. Gates almost always are named for where they take you. And there was a very there was a trash dump on the southern end of the city at the juncture of the Honom and the Kidron, the Central Valley. And, but anyway, any rate he was in the dung Gate and up there and you'll see there on the western hill the upper city as it's called there the last supper now i gotta be quick the point is this is what i want you to think about imagine what is going on in the mind and heart of judas judas has as it turns out john 18 has a whole cohort of soldiers waiting to arrest jesus he has the whole Sanhedrin, seventy men, all ready to have an illegal nocturnal trial about about midnight, and and he's got. It, there have been a lot of drachma changed hands here, but Pilate has been induced to move his whole judicial apparatus out to the a gate on the west side of the city so that he can conduct the trial at about four thirty in the morning. Because again, the whole plot. Has to do with getting Jesus tried, I'm sorry, arrested, tried, sentenced, and on his way to execution before the city wakes up. Both the Romans and the Jewish, Roman and Jewish leadership, I like to say, have Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday ringing in their ears. And they are absolutely convinced, with good reason, that if the city realizes that this one whom they welcomed as king has been arrested, there's going to be a riot and they they, that's why the huge roman force and so on so you have this huge plot in place to get jesus as i say arrested sentenced, tried uh arrested by a roman cohort uh tried first of all by the sanhedrinists and then by the romans and then hauled off to crucifixion before the city wakes up and none of it can happen until judas fulfills his bargain he promised he would help them Arrest him in the absence of the multitude in connection with the Passover, but Jesus has kept the place secret, so I think it, 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 it must have just been bubbling inside of Judas as they made their way. But now, on your sheet there, going back to the outline, uh, number three there, all right, so let me let me quickly say, and we haven 't got time to develop this, but they do make their way up into this beautiful upper room in a huge wealthy villa and uh, by the way the disciples are quarreling over who should be greatest in the kingdom you remember probably struggling over who gets to sit closest to the master of the feast but at any rate jesus conducts the passover and after the passover jesus announced that the hand of the betrayer is at the table and when he does oh, it's a hugely exciting time. Everybody says, who could it be? Judas, who is almost certainly sitting right next to Jesus, leans over to Jesus and says, Master, is it I? He says it privately. And Jesus says, it is. So now any pretense is over. Judas knows that Jesus is on to him, but he makes a, an excuse. Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. He makes an excuse, and he goes to fetch the Sanhedrinist and the soldier. If you look on that map... Uh, you'll see the Temple Mount on the north and east of the map, the top right, the big Temple Mount. And on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, you see those four uh, black rectangles with the walls between that represent the Fortress Antonia. That's where Judas would have had to go to fetch the Sanhedrinus. So he's hustling, I'm sorry, the soldiers in the Sanhedrinus. So he hustles up there, I have no idea where they're going to have to arrest him. Meanwhile, Jesus begins to teach. And all of a sudden... And I very suddenly, and to the surprise, I think, of, of the disciples, John 14, 31, he says, Arise, let us leave. So Jesus leaves, and you can follow this in the map if you wish. He's in the upper room down in the lower left-hand corner, what's called the Last Supper. He leaves, and he makes his way back out to the Valley Cadron. The Valley Cadrone is, is the deep valley between the Temple Mount, the eastern hill on the, on the west, and then the, the Mount of Olives on the east. But low on the Mount of Olives is a place called Gethsemane. And so now Jesus makes his way out to Gethsemane with the eleven. All along the way he is teaching. This is John fifteen, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is John sixteen. It is expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the comfort will not come, if I depart, he will if I through the of course the references to his death. Uh, then the Comforter will come. John 17, the marvelous prayer that he prays. Your name comes up in that prayer, as it were. But then in John 18, it says, stepping across the valley Cadron, there was a, a garden. So Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to go to Luke 22. Now, this is where I've been taking you. But But, folks, it is staggering to me, and this is why I took the time to walk you through this, to get us to the garden. The way Jesus took such pains as a matter of fact i I didn't mention this but he took such pains to make sure that he would have i like to call thursday night a time of messianic preparation on two counts first of all in the upper room and along the way to gethsemane jesus is preparing his faithful apostles and you have all of this marvelous teaching in john 14 let not your heart be troubled I go to prepare a place. And then John 15, the vine. And John 16, the Spirit coming. And then the prayer that Jesus prays on behalf of his apostles and those who are yet to come in John 17. All of that is so important. And Jesus was such a master teacher. And he knew how important it was going to be to have these moments with his, with, with his apostles, with, the, with his, those who are faithful. But I say, just to make this point, that uh, when Jesus got to the upper room, he said to his disciples, you don't know with what desire I have desired to keep this supper with you. Now I believe what he is saying primarily is this, you don't know how I've worked, how I've moved heaven and earth to make sure this would happen. See, because if he had not been careful to keep the place secret from Judas, then the soldiers would have been waiting for them when they got to that, to that upper room. And Jesus has, a, he has has worked so carefully because these moments were so important to him to prepare his disciples. But on top of that, and just as importantly, if not more so perhaps, in Gethsemane, Jesus is preparing his own soul spirit. And I told you before, Jesus, during his mortal life, has no more spiritual resources than you and I. And One of the most, frankly, challenging and instructive and deeply convicting elements of Jesus' life for me is his prayer life. Here is this one who had no sin nature, who knew his Father so intimately, but he had taken upon himself genuine human nature and he longed for and craved and depended upon the communion and the support and so on that he found in prayer. And before he went to the cross, it was it, he had moved heaven and earth again. I to make sure that he had these moments with the Father. And so now he, he, he makes his way with the 11 out to Gethsemane. When he gets there, Gethsemane is a garden. It's not a little rose garden. It's an agricultural installation. By law, you couldn't have a garden or a tomb inside a walled city. So Every walled city is going to be ringed, and you can, you can you can discern today the extent of the city, and many times it grows, but because you 're going to have, have find tombs and gardens all around the city and there was a very active and evidently productive uh, olive grove where people were making it was a, it was an industry and and some family owned a a little hobby farm or agricultural installation, and it was hedged in with with thorns and so on and uh, Jesus was allowed. To use it, one of the interesting elements of this, and when you get to Israel, I implore you try and try and try and do this. Most groups don't, but you go to Gethsemane, and I think you can be very very confident you're standing in a place where Gethsemane was. It's a long story, but Gethsemane features a cave which is low in the hill, and you got to go a kind of a circuitous route to get there. But that cave was part, and as a matter of fact, in the back of that cave, now it's a Catholic church today, and they've covered up. You can't see it, but used to be able to see it, but. But there is an olive press in the back of that cave. And this clearly is, is, and I think, and, and the Bible says both in Mark and John that Jesus often stayed at Gethsemane. And so the point is, here's a, a follower of his who has this, this place adjacent to Jerusalem, and uh, it has a cave. It's actually a working cave, but nonetheless, it would be warm in the uh, winter and be cool in the summer. And so and, and when he came to the city with his disciples, he would often stay there. And so Judas knew the place. By the way, I give you on that map that undoubtedly, after Judas had gone to fetch the Sanhedrin of the soda, he would have gone back to the upper room, but he found it empty. And he knew that there was no other place in town in the middle of the night that Jesus and 11 people could find a place, especially at Passover. So he leads the, uh, the soldiers and the sanhedrinists, the same route, you'll see it on your map there, and they come down to Gethsemane. But the point is, uh, Jesus comes to Gethsemane. And I think what happened is and, and I'm sure the disciples thought it was time listen, take this with you when you read the Bible. Light is very expensive and very limited. This is basically a culture, a time where when the sun went down, you go down. So by now they're very tired. It's late at night. It's Passover to be sure. But they're ready to go to sleep. So now they come into this cave and Jesus leaves eight of them there. And he says this, my soul is heavy in me unto death. Please watch and pray. He takes the other three, Peter, James and John, into the garden and again he begs them to pray for him and luke spells it out this way in luke chapter 22 and verse 39 uh it says um oops. he came out and went as was his custom see there it is he went as was his custom in other words they often stayed here to the mount of olives the disciples followed him when he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation he withdrew them about a stone's throw now again you have to You have to harmonize with the other uh, uh, Gospels to realize that he had left eight behind and he takes three. And uh, he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. All right, now I want to emphasize again, I already said it. This is the prayer, isn't it? In John chapter 12, what shall I pray? Deliver me from this hour? No, I can't pray that. But now as the cross grows, I don't think, let me just say, make two notes about this. Number one, I don't think, well I'll say it positively, I think we are so advantaged in understanding the emotion and the trauma and the the dynamics of this scene to measure it against John chapter 12, Tuesday afternoon, when Jesus had refused to pray this prayer. And now three different times he's going to cry out, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Now, let me just get this on the record. There are those who argue that what he means, there's, I don't, don't, this doesn't, I can't compute this. But there are those, quite frankly, who are offended at the notion of Jesus being terrorized. And they think that it, it suggests that he's a coward. No, you see, he would have been a coward if he went back, if he turned back. But if he hadn't been terrorized by what was about to happen, he would have been insane. And the fact is, he was terrorized. There is absolutely no way in which that, that, that involves any sort of uh, negative mark or anything like that. But he was terrorized. Now, because some are offended by that, they have argued that when he said, let this cup pass from me, that the cup at stake was some satanic attempt to kill Jesus in the garden. And Jesus was so anxious to go to the cross that he was saying, don't let the devil kill me in the garden. Let this cup pass from me. Does that make sense to you? How do you get that? But as I said to a group of pastors who were really upset with me over this, but I said, so you're saying that his prayer was answered, that the devil didn't kill him, that the cup was taken from him? They said, yeah. Yeah. I said, well, then why, when he leaves the garden, does he say to Peter, will I not drink the cup my Father has given me? Clearly the cup is a representation. It's it's, it's a word picture for the awful, unspeakable terror that Jesus is about to endure, the terror of being forsaken by the Father. Judicially disfellowshipped, I like to say. And uh, for the purpose of providing a sin covering for you and me. So I want to go back to it. As Jesus prays three times, he cries out, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Now, and he always goes on to say, nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. Well, let me, let me just mention two other things. There are, and these are stunning to me. Luke gives us two insights here, where he says, first of all, in, uh, in verse 43, he says, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him now folks think what is the only other time in jesus mortal life where the father sent angels to care for him was that the temptation now think about what's at stake here and remember that i always say with regard to the temptation jesus fasts for 40 days he eats nothing what do you look like at the end of a 40-day fast he's at the very brink of death he has no strength he can't care for himself And I like to say that if it had been somebody else, Jesus might have simply miraculously spoken them back into health. But Jesus would not do that for himself. He never uses his miracle-working power on his own behalf. He came to live your life before you. That would be cheating. The Father knows this. He's alone, and so he sends angels. And for probably weeks and months, those angels minister to Jesus physically and get him back to, to some measure of strength. Well, now the only other time, and there are some remarkable parallels. The, the, the big one being that there's nobody there to help him. The disciples have fallen asleep, and the Father sees this, and He dispatches an angel. And 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 what stuns me is this: that at this point, it's not by reason of a forty-day fast that Jesus is so physically extended, by re- it's by reason of the contemplation of what he was about to endure for you and me. And and, and I, I don't know what that angel did. I picture him maybe just reaching down and helping Jesus off the ground. And maybe it's with angelic help that Jesus staggers out of the garden. But I, the fact that the Father dispatched an angel would suggest to me that Jesus was physically terrified that, he, that that he was cripplingly let 's say it that way, terrified by the contemplation of being forsaken by the Father, and then in the next verse, Luke goes on to say that as he got up, Jesus left there were, that he had sweat great drops of blood, which is again a a physical condition which represents such a, a heart that is beating with such ferocity that the the, the the blood is forced out of the capillaries and so on into the sweat glands and 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 all of that, I'm going to say again, Dr. Luke gives us these two insights and they belong there. For those of you who are tied into this, I know there's a text critical issue there. They belong there. I can explain what happened to them in some text. But but the fact is that Luke goes out of his way to give us some representation of the physically crippling impact upon Jesus. Now, here's the point. I I think Gethsemane, the scene given us in Gethsemane, is the Father's way of giving us some insight into the spiritual terror that Jesus is enduring. And and, and you know, artists in most every age and every medium can, and today it's almost sickening, but they, they develop the capacity to represent for us somehow in words or pen or, 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 or film... To represent physical suffering think about this how do you give expression how do you put on display spiritual suffering the kind of terror of soul that is represented here and i would say that in this drama it is gethsemane It, it, it almost seems a bit impertinent for us to gaze upon this scene where the son pours his heart out to the father but the Father in heaven wants us to see this, and he he, he records it for us carefully in the Synoptics. And I think, and my Megan says to you, I think it's so important. I, I, I like to say it this way: that I don't believe that you can get your arms around Golgotha the way you should, unless you start with Gethsemane. You've got to contemplate the 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 physical debilitating effects of the contemplation of Jesus contemplation of what he was about to endure but it is with angelic help that he staggers out of the garden and uh now i'm going to take you i'm done in just a couple minutes here's what happens jesus as he steps out of the garden here comes judas and the sanhedrinists jesus is arrested the 11 desert him jesus is hauled up to the priestly villa of caiaphas on the western hill and uh, in time he confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and as soon as they hear him say that, I am the Christ, they say, well, okay, we got him. you got to understand, A, the Romans are absolutely pathologically uh, uh, paranoid about sedition in Israel. They have it all the time. It's always a pretender king, a messiah. Secondly, you have to understand that the most the the period of the year when they most often face seditious issues the romans was a passover they hated passover because everybody was thinking about a time when yahweh god delivered them from a gentile overlord in 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 the book of exodus well now there's a different gentile overlord and they're sick of him uh that is the jews are sick of rome and so this is a a really really incendiary period and so now when the Sanhedrinists hear Jesus openly say or confess, acknowledge that he is the Messiah. I always say Messiah means a lot of things to the Jewish mind, but above all things it means king. And now they can go to Pilate and say, this guy is a seditionist. That's exactly what they do. They take Jesus to Pilate. And I uh, love this story, but we're not going to spend any time with it. And uh, Pilate works nobly, persistently, uh, Putting himself at risk, he works so hard to release Jesus. But finally, the Sanhedrinists say, "Pilate, John 19, if you don't crucify him, we're going to tell Caesar." And G- and and Pilate turns Jesus over to be crucified, and Jesus is taken out to a garden. Let me take you to John 19. uh I summarize that there in your in, in your notes. But he has taken in, uh, now, actually, where we encounter the garden is in the story of the burial. In John 19, we're told that near the place where he was crucified, and there's a lot to say here, but I'm just going to... He says, after those things, this is after Jesus has died. I want to go back in just a moment. Uh, uh, Pilate gave him permission to be buried, and uh, we read... In uh, verse forty-one, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. That's what I mean—the tale of two gardens. So, having begun Thursday night, pouring himself out in prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, now his body is going to be laid in a second garden. But let me back up. I just want to go to John nineteen. Stay there in John nineteen. What's going to happen? And I summarize this under the point two a. Uh, And in Matthew 27, you have Jesus crying out, I've already talked about this, my God, my God, look, 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 I I shouldn't be that quick. You know that he's hanging on a cross by about nine in the morning. The sun continues to shine. He speaks three times, Father, forgive them. Uh, To the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. To his own mother and then to John, behold your son, John, behold your mother. And then the sky grows dark. And I don't believe it's, it's natural. I don't believe in it uh, its eclipse. It's, it's a preternatural, and it's not darkness where you can't see your hand in front of your face because God wants you to see this scene. But in order to make the case that this is such a, an infinitely awful miscarriage of all that is right, he, 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 he pulls what I call a curtain of grayness across the scene. And this, this, this preternatural three-hour darkness is recorded in other parts of the world. And uh, somehow he dimmed the sun, and it became mystically and mysteriously and frighteningly, I'm sure, uh, gray. And for those three hours, Jesus says nothing. And I would argue that these are the hours where the Father disfellowships the Son, and there is a terror of suffering, spiritual agony that uh, I think we will spend eternity exploring and and learning to appreciate more and more as the eons roll. But but in ways that we can't fully understand, the Father fellowship the Son, and it was only after those three hours that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But then, take you to John 19, and uh, because in John 19, in verse 28, and let me just tell you this. Maybe I've told you this before. I've got to be done. I am mildly persuaded that psalm 22 remember now jesus was absolutely dependent upon the spiritual resources that god has provided one of them is the scripture he loved the scriptures and i've read in two or three different places that it was the habit in that day and actually is among many orthodox jews today that they would often contemplate a passage of scripture and they would just recite it to themselves but they would always say the first line aloud and then just under their breath, very softly, not so much to themselves, but they would sing so you couldn't hear it. And then when they got to the last line of the passage, they would say it aloud. And of course, in Crying Out, Matthew 26, my God, my God, why is he quoting Psalm 22. And I would suggest that Psalm 22 was the specific passage that Jesus leaned on to get through this experience. And that he quoted that to himself, and it's, it's it's such an amazing parallel. Quite on quite obviously. Oh, I better not go any further. With it. there, there's a there's a transition in the 22nd psalm in verse 21, where all of a sudden this one who, who 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 clearly in the psalm had no reason to hope, who had been totally abandoned, who had absolutely no no rational reason to but but he wouldn't let go he wouldn't let go and all of a sudden it changes and then he cries out i'm going to tell everybody what you've done for me well it's interesting that on the cross now go to john 19 and verse 28 all of a sudden says after this jesus knowing that all was now finished and do understand this folks the atoning work was done on the cross it was completed on the cross we're going to read it right here Now Jesus did suffer physical death because that's part of the curse, but the terror of the cross and the atoning work of the cross was those hours when he hung there and was disfellowshipped by the Father. And now knowing that it was over, knowing that all things, and then he said, and I've I've talked to you about this before, and and I, and I was always, I mean, it was always a little troubling to me. You have the standard seven sayings on the cross, but one of them seemed a little out of place. Sort of a, which one of these is not like the other exercise, you know what I mean? Because uh, they're so profound, but they, well, I think the point is there are six sayings on the cross. But as Jesus hung there, and let me just say that one of the, we know a lot, listen, crucifixion, absolutely saps every drop of moisture from your body not just the the moisture in your system and so on but because it's so desperately in pain and so on it begins to draw water out of the you know draw moisture out of the red uh out of your blood cells and so on and 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 what happens is that everything swells your throat swells your tongue swells and and many times people would die just from asphyxiation they gag themselves they couldn't draw they couldn't draw breath anymore because their their throat was so swollen and I think what's at stake is Jesus having hung in that cross now for six hours. His 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 throat box was so swollen he had lost the capacity he couldn't speak he could barely speak, and so I think he hangs there. He'd cried out a little while ago, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken on me?" But now, just a little bit later, I think. Uh, he has something to say but he can't say it and so he gathers his strength and with what little strength he said and I think in a voice probably that only those right next to the cross could understand, could hear. He just croaked out the, the words, I thirst. And a soldier standing by takes pity and takes some uh, cheap wine and puts it in a, a, a sponge and holds it up and I picture Jesus taking a minute to take that cheap wine and try and get a little life back in get some moisture back into his tongue and take some of the swelling out of his throat box because he has something to say and he's desperate to say it and he has paid a price we will never fully understand in order to have the right to say it and all of the moral universe is longing to hear him say it but he is so racked by the physical abuse of crucifixion he has to take a minute and gather enough strength and finally he cries out it is finished. It's done. Ah, that ought to take our breath away, should it not? And now he cries out, and no longer before it was, my God, my God, but that's been taken care of. The atoning work is done. And so now he cries out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He gives up the ghost. His body is taken down. It's carried off to that other garden just outside a northern gate of the city of jerusalem some people that doesn't make sense why would you have a crucifix place of garden look at it. the entire area was a worked out quarry and what they would generally do is when they were done with a the quarry they would sell it to somebody he would haul in a lot of dirt and fill it in and try and level it off where he could and make it into a garden make it into a farm now, it was near a gate, and wherever the, and, and the Romans always had some specific place of execution for any major city, and they certainly did in Jerusalem. So there were undoubtedly a number of, of vertical uh, spikes in the ground, and the victim would have to carry the cross piece and so on. So near the place, just outside of a gate, where there was the standard place of crucifixion, there was a garden, and in that garden was a new tomb, and so Jesus is laid in that tomb. Now, as I say, on the third day after that, Jesus steps alive from that tomb. And uh, I have in the getting to the point at the bottom, and let me say this, and you're very patient here, but I'll be done right now. But uh, now I've used this line before with you, but I tell you, my son got after me one time for, Dad, you don't know how to quit. You say you're quitting, you're not quitting. You keep talking. <laughs> well, I don't really mean to. But I told, my reply was this. How many chapters are there are in Philippians, do you know? Four. What's the first word in chapter 3? Do you know? What is it? Finally. <laughs> think <about> it. <laughs> just think about it. But uh, I I have apostolic pattern here, is what I'm trying to say. But, nah. Now let me just take you here. Because, again, what we're talking about, and I, I don't want to leave this alone. Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience. Now, what does that mean? You know what? You know what? What is it to live by faith? I, we were talking at lunch yesterday at the, at the Miller home and with the, um, um, uh, what's their names? That we were with yesterday. Defranes, defranes. I want to say it the The, the Defranes. But I said, I think a lot of people have, have the idea that faith is like like popeye's spinach can now this will work for us older folks but you know what i mean by popeye's spinach can is he not always getting to beat to death by bruto until he squeezes that thing and you watch the spinach and what happens boing boing is this not working for anybody else in the house for heaven's sakes you know what i'm talking about and, and the point is all of a sudden he's got strength he didn't have before and we treat faith as if it's a strength which god somehow gives us so we can get something done Faith is always and ever an admission, I have no strength. That's the whole point. It's dependence. And and what is it to live by faith? It's to obey when it makes no sense or when you can't understand how in the world you can survive it. And yet you obey. And you depend upon the... That's exactly what's going on here. He learned what it is to obey and to walk through the darkest night any human soul could possibly conceive of, let alone experience... And he depended upon the father. And the father brought him through. You're going to have hard times in your life. And what God calls upon you to do is obey God and trust him for the outcome. Whether it makes sense, whether or not you can even imagine, you can survive it. That's what we're called to do. And we have a high priest who has been there. That's the point. Isn't that not true? He learned obedience through the things which he suffered oh i could say a lot about it but let me just take you to that little box and i this this is this is big to me and i've talked about it before here but i'll refresh you it's just interesting to me that there are three times in john and i give them to you there when jesus speaks explicitly of being lifted up John three eighteen, as Moses lifted up uh, John three, what is it uh, fourteen? I think as, Je- as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John chapter eight, he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are saying, "You're speaking for yourself. You're not speaking for God. You're not speaking for the Father." And he says, "No, no. When I am lifted up, you will know that I speak for the Father." And then most instructively in John twelve, that very passage that we looked at just after that. Uh, where, where he, he prays to the father in, in the next passage there it says that uh, jesus said to them i if i be lifted up will gather all will draw them into myself now i have often heard quite frankly and I, I don't i think it misses the point uh that phrase lifted up referred it, it, it taken to mean glorify. if we honor him if we rejoice over him, if we if we celebrate him if we worship him then all men will be drawn There may be some truth to that proposition, but that's what the verse is saying, and I can prove it because in the next verse, and you have it there on your sheet, John 12, verse 32, John the Apostle gives us this remarkable insight. Jesus says, I, if I am lifted up, will draw him into myself. And then John says this, this spake he concerning the type of death he would die. And interestingly, when he was hauled off to the Sanhedrinists, I'm sorry, when the Sanhedrinists, the Jewish authorities, took him to Pilate, in John chapter uh, 18, and verse 28, they take him to Pilate, and Pilate says, what's the charge? And they say, he's a, he's a malefactor, just crucify him. And they say, I'm not going to do that. If that's what you want to do, you just go crucify him. You go try him yourself. And, and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders say, you know that we can't put him to death. And then John says this, this happened in fulfillment of what Jesus said concerning the type of death. He should die so when he talked about being lifted up he was talking about crucifixion and we might have expected that jesus would die at the hands of the jews by stoning but it was imperative now the bible never tells us why i got an idea you probably figured that out <laughs> i really think i think this is the reason i'm going to go back to what i said to you before the romans intended for crucifixion to put down sedition not just to execute this and therefore they demanded it be cruel They demanded that it be lingering. They demanded that it be public. But of all things, they demanded that it be publicly certifiable. In other words, what I mean by that is, and this was absolutely demanded, that the victim had to die on the cross. There had to be physical evidence of his death on the cross. And the reason was quite simply that the Romans would not tolerate the possibility that the rumor would get started that the poor wretch had survived. And so there had to be physical evidence, and that's why the sword in the side and so on, there was a protocol that if a man was crucified and was taken off the cross inadvertently too early and he died just the last hint of life on the ground, and then he died on the ground, all the soldiers assigned to that detail were immediately put in the cross. That's how serious Rome was that he had to die on the cross. Now the point is simply this. You didn't have to watch, you didn't have to see the blood and water flow out of Jesus' side. As soon as you were anywhere in the Roman Empire, if you heard that he died on a Roman cross, you know he didn 't come down until he was dead and if he had to if he died certainly on that cross, then when he showed himself alive forty for forty days, there was absolutely no denying that he was everything he claimed to be, and he could do everything he this is why Romans one four says that he was declared. I like to contrast this to John 19, verse 7, where the enemies of Jesus, the Sanhedrinists, say, if you won't crucify him as a seditionist, then we have a law, and by our law you got to die because he claims to be the Son of God. And then you go to Romans 1, 4, and Paul says he was declared. And Again, the word is horizo. and I don't know if I can make it this literal, but I, I like to think of it. The message was spread. It's our word horizon. It was spread from east to west, from earth to sky in such a way that you can't miss it you can't deny it you can't mistake it he was declared to be the son of god with power by the resurrection from the dead the resurrection can be proof of who he of what he claimed and who he was and so on only if he genuinely died so i would say this i think the the record is quite clear that jesus deliberately contrived to die at the hands of the romans the most awful death you can imagine but again it wasn't the physical sufferings that terrified him but he contrived to make sure he would die in that way so that there could be no mistaking that he had genuinely resurrected so i leave you with this jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered i'm going to say where i'm going to end where i started there's mystery in this we don't claim that we can really sort out the person of jesus And this idea that God-man is bottomlessly... But it's all that the Bible says concerning Jesus is true. And he certainly took upon himself genuine humanity. And because of that, as I keep saying, as the Bible says, he's your kinsman and therefore he can be your redeemer. He didn't take upon himself the nature of angels. He took upon himself the nature of Abraham because he came to rescue men. And because of that genuine humanity, he can be deeply, really touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Folks, wallow in this. We have a high priest who lived our lives before us. Amen and amen. He was a learner. Well, thank you so much for the time together. Let me have a word of prayer with you, and we're done. Father, again, we rejoice over your goodness, and we acknowledge that you have surrounded us day by day in ways that we are all together to uh, we take too much for granted, but uh, you have surrounded us with evidences of what a good, loving, caring God you are. But above all your expressions of goodness, there is this, that you sent your Son. We, we will explore throughout eternity uh, what it means for, for your Son to be the God-man. But Father, it's clearly revealed in your Scriptures. We rejoice over it, and we thank you for all that you have accomplished through your Son, on our behalf. We worship you as God. We belong to you as our Maker. But beyond that, we worship you as a good and giving and gracious God who has sent your Son. Thank you for it in His name. Amen.